what I believe was the title of two separate essays by the philosopher Bertrand Russell and the novelist E.M. Forster in the early 20th century. These two humanist activists set out their approach to life, their fundamental worldview, in a way that was accessible to all. I'm Andrew Copson, Chief Exec of Humanists UK, and in this podcast I'm talking to humanists today about what they believe, to understand more about the values, convictions and opinions they live by. week we're joined by Richard Wiseman. Richard is a psychologist and magician known around the world for his research into the psychology of luck, persuasion, self-help and illusion, which has featured on a lot of television programs you've probably seen, Horizon, Body Shock, Tomorrow's World back in the day, and he's often heard as a contributor and commentator elsewhere. He's written a large number of best-selling books, including 59 Seconds, Shoot for the Moon and The Luck Factor, and he's also a patron, most importantly, of Humanists UK. Richard, thanks for joining us. Pleasure. So you're a psychologist. Yes. But you've devoted a lot of your career to looking at phenomena that most people probably wouldn't judge um, to be that worthwhile looking at scientifically, the paranormal. Yeah, no I, I wasted <laughs> well over a decade of my life. I don't think anyone could, I don't think anyone could call your uh, career wasted, but you did concentrate on something that I think a lot of people um, would find it unusual to see a working academic of um, your sort of level uh, giving giving their time to. Is that have I got that wrong? I hope so, um, because it was it was over a, a decade. So basically, I yeah, I got into magic when I was a kid, as in sort of stage magic. And then I got interested in the paranormal from there. Um, I should also point out, I've got quite a creaky chair here. I don't know if you can hear that. Maybe you can't. But if you do hear it, it's it's the chair, not my bones. I, I, don't <laughs> like that. I could sound um, as if I've got very creaky bones. Um, so, yes. Yeah, so, I, so, I, so I've always been sceptical about the paranormal. And so it wasn't like a lot of parapsychologists or people who are into the field go, oh, you know, I went and had a tarot reading and it all turned out to be true and that's how I got interested and then I became sceptical. That's a very sort of um, well-worn story. Mine wasn't that at all. I was sceptical from the first day. I just thought there's there's nothing to this, I think, because I've got a background in magic. But what I was interested in, a bit like when you get fooled by a magician, is the psychology underlying these experiences and beliefs. That seemed to me to be really quite an interesting um, sort of topic to look at. So I've spent, yeah, around about 10 years looking at mediums and psychics and ghosts and precognition, deja vu, uh, all those things, looking at the psychology behind them. And whether it was wasted or not, I think it probably was. I regret the whole thing. <laughs> I just wished none of it had happened. Terrible. I, I wasn't implying it was wasted. I was implying that it was unusual because I thought it might tell us something um, interesting or unusual about your own motivations. And I think it has, because um, what you said there is that you were motivated by scepticism. Well, I was, so I was brought up in, in a sort of <laughs> deeply atheist um, household, and uh, which didn't seem at all strange at the time. But now looking back, I realised, I mean, we didn't have a Bible in the house. We never, ever went anywhere near a church. I still know absolutely nothing about the Bible. I mean, people occasionally come up with biblical references, and I just sort of look a little bit um, confused. Mm. Uh, we used to have school assembly, 
and I used to leave every single time before we did the the religious bit. Right. Right. And uh, then uh, I sort of a little group of us got together and got a bit fed up about the fact that they were teaching uh, religious stuff in the school. And so during religious during the the Lord's prayer uh, where we did decide to stay, uh, we started humming. Uh, because the, the, the other, the, you couldn't tell who was humming in a group of a couple of hundred kids uh, to try and sort of disrupt that a little bit. And <laughs> uh, we were quite proud of that. And then, yeah, we did various things to try and sort of stop religion being taught in the school. So it was, it was quite a deeply sort of atheist kind of upbringing. And so when it came to the paranormal, you know, there's no way I was going to go, look, I don't know anything about God or Jesus or anything like that, but I reckon ghosts exist. So it was always going to come from quite a, a sceptical angle. That's a, that's a very active scepticism. I mean, I don't think I don't think there are many people who say, oh, "Yeah, I went into my chosen uh, field because I was just so disbelieving of it. You know, I was just so <laughs> sceptical of it that I just felt I had to immerse myself in it and spend my time addressing it. Um, I was so motivated by my complete disbelief in it." Yeah, no, it's pr- that's probably true. Actually, I, I think what but was, you did, I did, I did. Um, well, I, I was, I was, I didn't have many other ideas really. You know, I, I finished <laughs> my psychology degree. It was either that or short-term memory, and um, uh, no, I wasn't going to be looking at that. So it, it just seems to me interesting that that people have these experiences that that seem to be religious experiences or paranormal ones, um, and. A lot of psychology is really, really dull. I mean, the psychologists have this phenomenal ability to take something as lovely and beautiful and fascinating as the human mind and reduce it to the dullest possible experiment you could imagine. And and so when you look at these papers on some memory and perception and so on, I was just, I've got a very short attention span, and I was just bored. And then I was sort of thinking, well, there's all this sort of fab, fabulous stuff that I know about, like ghosts and psychics and things like that. That seems to me a good thing to be doing, um, in the sense it was interesting. And so that was the direction I, I went in. and did that for a very long time, and then got a little bit fed up with it, because I decided that that sort of scepticism wasn't really doing very much to, to help people um, embrace a more sort of scientific view of the world. So I actually stopped doing it probably in about 2001, something like that. What did you find about it that it wasn't helping? Why wasn't well, it helping? I, 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 mean, I did a lot of it. I did a lot of it. And and so I've got endless uh, tapes here of me on various television programs. If anyone ever has problems sleeping, they're, they're, they're ideal for that. Um, you know, trying to convince people that ghosts don't exist and, and, and mediums, there's uh, all psychology and so on. And after a while, you realize, one, it's not a great way about going about anything. And, and two, it's just a little bit dull after you been doing it for for years and years and years and then i went to a sales conference which i now can't remember very much about i think i was a speaker at some sales conference and uh, somebody won an award for being best salesperson of the year or something and i chatted to them and i said what's the secret of selling and they said find something that everybody wants to buy and i realized that nobody wants to buy skepticism you know, it's fun to believe in ghosts, or it's nice to think that uh, a psychic can tell you all about your future, or a medium gives you proof of the afterlife. And there was me sitting there telling people it wasn't true. And so that's when I converted over, as it were, to uh, looking at the psychology of luck and and how you can lead a luckier life. And that was all straight psychology stuff, but you're still selling the scientific method, but you're selling it in a much more positive way. And so I spent another few years doing experiments into uh, to luck and change and happiness and so on, and then started writing uh, books about that. Yeah. 
I, will, I think we'll come back to luck because that is certainly something that you've 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 written and, and, and spoken a lot about, and I think it might tell us something about um, your view on things more widely. Um, but just to, to stay for a moment with the with the the sceptical uh, period in your life, um, what did you come to believe then about why people believed in the paranormal? You seem to be saying that it basically boiled down to um, you think that people believe in it because it makes them feel good. Yeah, so there's various hypotheses, as psychologists like to say, uh, about these things. And one is a kind of cognitive thing, which is that there's something wrong with them. They, they, they're just not thinking rationally. And, and they're not capable of thinking rationally. They've got, they've got lower IQs, whatever that means, than others or, or whatever. And over time, I just drifted away from that because all the believers I was meeting seemed to be perfectly nice people. Um, in other domains, they were very functional, very successful and so on. And so I, I started to, to buy into much more of what psychologists would call a motivational um, uh, approach, which is that they want to believe. They, they, they want to believe in ghosts or want to believe in a psychic healer or medium or whatever it is. And that then is kind of clouding their judgment in terms of the evidence they look at and how they, they look at it. And I just think that's true of pretty much everything. It's true of all of us is that if we want to believe something, then we don't look for disconfirming evidence. You know, if some evidence comes along that um, challenges a, a cherished belief, that's when we give it a really, really hard time. So it's not that we're not capable of rational thought. I, I think we all are. It's just we're not motivated, and and that was in, in general my position that emerged. And did you do you feel that's a shame, or just how it is? It's just how it is. It's just we're all like that. I don't think anyone is rational about everything. Um, you know, I, uh, I spent some of the lockdown making pop up books. I've got I've done an online course on making pop up books. And so I've made these little pop-up things. You know, you open the card, now pops a building or whatever it is. Now, I've shown those to people, and they've gone, oh, Richard, this is amazing. Now, I, there's no way I'm going to kind of cross-examine them and go, no, but what do you really think? Because I want <laughs> to believe that these things are great, and I want to believe people when they tell me they're amazing. And and so, you know, it's just it's it's part of who we are that, that we like to believe certain things because they make us feel good. And then we, we all sorts of mechanisms come into play um, to keep that feel good factor going. Let's come on to your work on luck. I mean, obviously, uh, the, the biggest output of which was your book, The, the Luck Factor. Mm. Um, what did you end up uh, believing about luck by the end of your work on that? That people make, for the most part, people make their own luck. So this was based on, a, again, actually another decade of working with incredibly lucky and unlucky people. And they were kind of amazing bunch to get into the lab because, as you might imagine, the lucky people were very optimistic about the world, very positive, the unlucky ones, not so much. And they would both tell the same sorts of stories, which is that it felt like magic to them. That, that they just seem to come across amazing opportunities in terms of the lucky people or, you know, the unlucky people never got a break. And when we started to carry out the experiments, you could see a lot of that. Not all of it. There were some accidents and illnesses uh, certainly beyond their control. But a lot of it was about the way they were thinking and behaving. So it, it's, we ended up arguing that uh, lucky people were creating their own luck. And perhaps most importantly, getting back to that, that, that little top uh, tip from the salesperson, that there were things you could do to increase the chances of being lucky. And that formed the basis for my first sort of popular book, as it were, which was The Luck Factor. And can people increase their chances of being lucky or of feeling lucky? 
Oh, well, the first is feeling lucky, and then that leads to a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. And right. so if you, um, just make a very sort of simple thing, uh, let, let's imagine um, that you're a positive person. So so if, if you change the way you think about yourself and think about yourself as lucky, well, then you become more positive. What's one of the results of that? Well, people want to spend more time with you. And so our emotions are um, contagious in that sense. People feel good when they're around you. And one, or there's a couple of very positive things that come from being very well socially, well socially connected. One is you're resilient. When bad things happen, you've got people around you. And second, in terms of opportunities, uh, they tend to come your way because you have conversations with people and they say, oh, well, I know so-and-so. Let me introduce you to them and so on. So the feeling of being lucky then flows through uh, into, if you like, genuinely being lucky. I wonder how that stacks up with some of your um, earlier work, because I, I've, I've heard you in talks and I think read you as well, saying about um, uh, questioning, actually, the idea that if you think positive, better things will happen. And that what you actually need to do is to do things in order to create better actions. But this seems to be saying slightly different, undercutting that, that actually thinking positive is valuable. Um, that's that's quite possible. So so in talks, you've probably heard me say that I'm not a fan of ju just positive thinking. There's this kind of movement that came out of America, which is, oh, you know, just be positive. And, and in fact, that doesn't have much impact on on people. What you need right. to do is, is know what that uh, actually means. What you need to do is is really know how to operationalize that that thought. And and so it's not just enough to, you know, tell someone to cheer up or, or whatever. That kind of doesn't work. So I'm not a fan of that sort of positive thinking. Also, as you just sort of touched on there, I am a massive fan of taking action. And and so with our lucky people, they were very energized. They just did things because it felt good or it was an interesting thing to do. The unlucky people often wouldn't take action until they'd overanalyze the situation. And by then, um, normally their analysis was out of date. So, yeah, I mean, that, that lovely phrase of, you know, things happen when you're doing other things, just doing stuff, getting out there, linking up with others, starting projects and so on. They tend to be the catalyst, certainly in terms of my life, um, to, to some of the most interesting ventures I've been on. So absolutely, yeah, I'm a big fan of doing. Being sceptical, taking action, being positive, creating your own fortune. These are obviously values and convictions that hang together pretty well. Has any of your work or do you ever think about um, what your values to do with relating to other people might be? I mean, you're a psychologist. That's a big domain for psychology, our interactions with other people. Are there any, what, what would you say has guided your life in that area of our existence? Not very much. I mean. I <laughs> people always people often say this they say oh yeah. just just normal just like everyone else you know being nice or being kind but then when you think about it out loud for a bit sometimes yeah. you do uh... I, I I suppose the old thing of you know treat others as you'd expect and want to be treated um is probably if there's an underlying principle uh I think that that sits in there I think Simon Munnery, the comedian, has got a very nice line, um, which is the religious wise or any other way. You can call yourself whatever you want, but if somebody throws a baby to you and you don't catch it, you're not a very nice person. And so I <laughs> think that just judging on behavior is the key thing, because we all love to say we're kind, nice people, and we all love to tell other people that we're kind, nice people. 
but it really just comes down to how you behave. And so I try and keep myself in check a little bit on that. First of all, by not going around saying I'm kind, nice person, because I don't think I particularly am. Uh, but and I'm not alone in that belief. Uh, but uh, but second, by, by trying to actually do things which are um, you know helpful to the people that I want to help, which isn't everyone. You know, I, I, I'm quite picky and choosy uh, about that. And also, I think it's kind of all right not to be a, a good person all the time because, I mean, I'm a social psychologist and I'm a situationalist. And so I don't think there really is a strong sense of person. I think we're different people in different situations. You go to a party, become more extrovert, uh, go to a library and um, uh, you become a little bit more introvert. And I think it's the same about kindness. People can be very kind under some situations and not so kind under others. So I'd sort of jettison that idea of a, a single sense of kindness or niceness or whatever, and, and probably argue I'm a different person in different situations. And and we all are, is what you're saying. Yeah, that's right. We and we also all have to think we're we're kind and good people. Like, there can't be many people in the world that would go, no, I'm I'm a nasty bit of work. I'm sure if you, you know, go into prisons and talk to people who've done some very nasty things, they'll still tell you that deep down there was a reason for that, and they are actually very kind, good people under other circumstances, and they may be right. Um, people are complicated. I'm complicated, and, and so are you. And uh, I'm I'm not a fan of actually the, the type of psychology now that's all over the place, which is self forgiveness. That they, if you you do a terrible thing, you you sort of forgive yourself for. It. I'm not a fan of that at all. I think understanding what you did is okay, but you've got to accept the responsibilities of your decisions and actions. And sometimes those um, that that sense of responsibility will have very negative consequences for how you think and feel. And I think you just have to accept that. I, I'm not. I never really get forgiveness. I don't really understand it. Oh, really? So what are the good consequences of not forgiving yourself? There may not be any. That you might change. There might not be any. But don't don't, don't, right. don't sort of grasp something and go, hey, I did this terrible thing, but I can forgive myself. And so actually it turns mm. out I am a good person. Just go, no, I did this terrible thing and and maybe I can change and be better in the future. But I did that. That was what, what that's the type of person I am under certain circumstances. And that's how it is. Um, so I, I would argue for a much sort of harsher view in that sense of of self. Um, I don't think it's always the, the need to feel good about yourself. I don't I don't think one should have that. I think feeling bad about yourself and some of the terrible things you've done, and just admitting that's that's part of your makeup and part of all our makeups to me is a is a more realistic and and and, and constructive approach. I suppose sometimes what people are talking about when they're talking about forgiving yourself. For- they're talking about actually trying to be at peace with yourself, you know, not hating yourself. Oh, there's no reason that to hate must yourself. Be, is, um, no. But you're taking a sort of an, a middle route, a, a realistic, would you say, sort of a, a realistic approach to yourself as a moral being. You know, you're, you, you've done this in this situation, you've done this in that situation. There's no point extremely blaming or extremely praising yourself. No, you can ask yourself what you learned from it. And how you? What are you going to do in the future to not do it again? But my worry about forgiving yourself is you end up doing it again because you end up forgiving yourself again. So I, I, I'd say it's, it's a it's a big area in psychology, and it's it's not one of my favourite areas in terms of psychology of change. What do the advocates of it? What do the advocates of it think? They're I think doing it's, it's absolutely well. obvious, isn't it? You take a group of people that behave badly, and you come up with an intervention where they think good of themselves, so they have their cake and eat it. 
they behave bad <laughs> yeah, but, and, and feel fine about it. If we were to take, if we were to assume their good, their good faith, the good at least of some people who advocate self forgiveness, if we were to assume their good faith, I suppose they must think they're achieving something by encouraging people to forgive themselves. I just wonder what it is. I mean, it's not an area of sort of popular psychology that I know well. But um, no, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, as I say, I, I go to lots of these conferences, and, and increasingly, there's people on stage telling the audiences to forgive themselves for the terrible things they've done, and like a lot of self help i mean the main person is helping is the person on stage or the author selling books or, or whatever right right um so I mean, i'm sure and i'm sure the literature is is very clear on it i'm sure people feel much better after you told them actually this terrible thing they've done um is absolutely fine but that doesn't mean on the for the long haul that that's going to make them feel better or a better person uh and it doesn't mean that they're going to change in a more effective way and all my stuff really is i'm interested in how individuals and organizations you know properly change long-term proper change i'm not really interested in people just sort of making themselves feel good you wrote a book didn't you 59 seconds think a little change yes i did and that sort of embodies what you've what you've begun to talk about the easiest book I've, i've done 12 books and that was the easiest one from day one that book knew what it was i went to my publisher and i said look we're going to do these things which you learn in less than a minute and i went home and i wrote it i think in about two and a half months and it's probably um still the the most sort of popular book and originally it was called 60 seconds and then somebody said oh um <laughs> if it's things in less than a minute should be called 59 seconds and uh, so that got us the main title. And then we could not come up with what's called a byline, the second title. And then I went to the gym and I, was, it was, I don't know exactly where it was. It wasn't my normal gym. I was on holiday. And the sort of running machine showed adverts, which was quite odd. Uh, but one of the adverts said, uh, drive a little, live a lot. And the moment <laughs> I saw that, I thought, you know, think a little, change a lot is exactly our byline. Uh, I texted it to my publisher and went, that, that's, that's the one. So it's, it's really weird how these things kind of come about, you know, so how the muses uh, speak to you. But yeah, 59 is, is about small, small things you can do that, that um, uh, make a big impact. And it's had a big impact itself as a book. I mean, I know a lot of people who you know, have well-thumbed copies. So, you, I mean, because there, obviously there is a taste, isn't there, out there for self-improvement and to, to read things by psychologists that will help you be better and develop personally. Um, yeah. And this is a well-evidenced example. Yeah, it is. And, and like all the stuff, I mean, I, I like doing innovative stuff. So when we did Luck Factor, there was really nobody doing the science of self-help. You've got practitioners going, oh, I think this works and it seems to work my client base and so on. We're the first ones, one of the first ones to run experiments. When it came to 59, um, people weren't really doing rational sort of based stuff in terms of change. They, they were just, again, talking about their own experiences. And so th- th- that wasn't really talking about my experiments. You talk about other people's experiments, but it was one of the first to put those sort of psychology experiments into a text. Now, that's a very uh, well-worn part. So it's nice to do things that that feel um, innovative. And yeah, I mean, it's the one that I get probably most emails about where people say very nice things about it, which is, you know, that, that is lovely. Is it? That's nice, isn't it? I can imagine that. I really can, because I think it's the it's the one where if, if I said to someone, I think, at the office that, you know, um, and they hadn't met you yet, that you were coming to speak at an event or something. I feel like that's the book that if they've read a book, they'd have read. Yeah, probably. And they would go, oh, yeah, that's, that's yeah, him. That's the one that really made him. a difference. The last person we wanted at that conference. Um, yeah. <laughs> they might say that. But when you, I mean, what what motivated you to write a book like that then? That was, I can't, I, I think, so I did like Factor. Then I think I did Quacology. 
um, and which was all about sort of quirky psychology. And that I, I woke up as often do. I normally have my best ideas when I wake up, and I woke up with fifty nine in my head. It's just I thought that is such an obvious book to do. There's so many of these psychology experiments where there's very quick learning from them. Uh, and I phoned up and pitched it and we got it straight away. So it was just that notion of a way of getting academic psychology, which I, I love and I think is a, is, a, is a wonderful discipline or some aspects of it, um, out there. You know, what, again, it's like, what's the carrot? Well, I can tell you about psychology experiments until the, the cow comes, the cows come home. Uh, it won't be very interesting. But the moment I say, and each one is linked to a learning, a very quick learning that's going to make you happier, more productive, better relationships, kinder person. Now people are listening, and and to me, in terms of communication, that's that's absolutely key. If it gets back to you know, find out what people want to buy, and and then. That you've got a kind of in, um, you're not struggling against the, the sort of tide, as it were. So I suppose the implication of that is that you want to help people become happier, more successful, I, I want, more confident. I want people to um, realise that they are plastic, that they're malleable, that they can change. What saddened me, saddens me about a lot of psychology is that you represent people as a brain, an unchanging brain. You are this type of person or you're that type of person. And that doesn't sit at all well with me. We change and we learn. And that, that is what's phenomenal about our brains. And, and that's what's phenomenal about us as people. We are as, as, as astonishingly agile and adaptable. And, and so then the question becomes, well, how do I change? And then you get into the whole psychology of it. But what's underpinning it is this notion um, essentially of, of growth and not, not stability. So it's not that you're a certain type of person. You're a type of person at the moment, but that can change and will change in the future. Being sceptical, taking action, rational, evidence-based, personal development. Richard Wiseman, thank you for telling us what you believe. Been a pleasure. That was Richard Wiseman, telling us about his life and his outlook on the world as a humanist for the What I Believe podcast. What I Believe is the weekly podcast from Humanist UK, and this was our fifth episode in our first season. We'll be releasing new episodes every Thursday. And if you'd like to support the podcast or find out more about the humanist approach to life, Humanist UK, or the work that we do, you can find it out at the Humanist UK website, humanists.uk. Next week, I'll be talking to broadcaster, writer and academic Alice Roberts, also the current president of Humanist UK, about what she believes. <laughs> <laughs>